This week on the show, I'm talking about the very first episodes of Star Trek Discovery. Holy fucking shit. It was awesome. I'm going to break it down for you, tell you everything I loved about it, everything I felt like was a little weird, but still kind of was okay with. Uh, Basically, we're just going to go deep on Star Trek Discovery right now. Let's do it. show for my birthday, which is such a cool feeling. 12 years ago, the last episode of Star Trek Enterprise aired, and it was terrible. So bad. And I knew it was over for the foreseeable future, and it was so depressing. So 12 years later, last night, uh, Sarah and Andy were here, and we watched the new Star Trek Discovery, and we're all just kind of blown away by it. I mean, I my jaw was, was hitting the floor for a lot of it. I felt like it was such an incredibly strong start, especially for a Star Trek show, which is my favorite. My Star Trek's my favorite. You know, I'm sorry, Star Wars. I love you. I love you, but Star Trek's my favorite. Uh, so this meant a lot to me, and it was such a cool experience to get to hang out with, you know, my uh, two people that I'm super close to. We went to dinner. We got pho, and it was awesome. I feel like I'm having this extra long birthday because my birthday started last night when Star Trek aired. So anyway, uh, it was really important to me to take some time today to sit down and record my thoughts about the new Star Trek show, Discovery, because there's a lot to talk about here, and I just wanted to get my thoughts out there while they're fresh. So first of all, uh, I my expectations were low. I... <laughs> I've been seeing all the reports of the like the bullshit happening behind the scenes. Brian Fuller as the showrunner was, you know, he was out after a while and people were freaking out. Oh, the show's going to be terrible. So I, I kind of distanced myself from all of the news about Star Trek Discovery because I just, I don't know. I, I don't like to get all wrapped up in things before I see them. I learned from episode one, The Phantom Menace, that if you get really excited about a thing before it exists, sometimes it's impossible for it to meet your expectations. Also, that movie was terrible. So, I didn't want to have high expectations. I didn't really put too much stock in any of the news that I heard. And I had just started straight up avoiding news uh, within the last couple of months. I didn't want to know anything going into this. So, uh, I, I knew that the show was going to take place 10 years before Kirk's Enterprise. I knew a fair amount of things, but uh, I, you know, th- there, there wasn't much to know, actually. I mean, they kept a lot of this under wraps. They really wanted it to be a secret what was going to happen and what we got was such a surprise because it's not the beginning of a new show it's a two episode prologue to whatever this new show is going to be which is setting up this conflict between the Klingons and the Federation the first thing that happens is that you meet this new group of Klingons led by uh, what's his name to come to come no that's a uh, that's that other guy to come nope I'm gonna look it up and I'm gonna cut out the time in which I was looking it up Tecumva. I was close. Uh, So we open on this Klingon, Tecumva, who's giving a rousing speech about how, you know, the humans are the enemy because they come in peace. And I was just so distracted by how weird they looked. And there's been a huge debate raging online about how the Klingons look. That's been going on for months, ever since we saw the first teaser trailer. And I, you know, I... 
I didn't. I did not wait into that at all. I'm just like I. I want to wait till I see the show. I. I didn't. I didn't really comb over that trailer very closely. I'm like, yeah, they look a little bit weird and different, but let's wait till we see the show. Uh, so now that I've seen the show, I can weigh in. I was very distracted by how the Klingons looked. It really kind of bothered me the whole time. Uh, I. I. I don't even know why they did it. I. I was so sure that they were going to give an in-world explanation for why the Klingons looked so different. And for most of the, the the premiere episodes, the first two episodes, I was sure that these Klingons were somehow like ancient Klingons that were flung out of time somehow, because there was something so Elizabethan about their presentation and so kind of dramatic and, and uh, just old feeling that we've never seen in Klingons before. So I thought that maybe they were some ancient offshoot or something like that. And I read some article about how they may, maybe were some ancient offshoot of the Klingon empire that got stuck in my head and uh, fucking articles. This is why you don't read articles. So that's not the case. They just look different. And I, I've now dived into what the producers have said a little bit. I watched after Trek, the after show that Matt Myra is hosting, which is insane because he's a podcast host that I've been listening to for years. Uh, so basically the producers are saying that there are many different houses of Klingons. Well, we've, you know, there's the 24 houses and I guess Tecumva is part of this hidden 25th house and the different houses look different and have a different sense of style. So there, there's a lot of baggage about the way that Klingons look as fans, because in the original series, Klingons look totally different than they did for the rest of the run of Star Trek. The only reason for that was that they didn't have a makeup budget, so they basically just darkened people's skin and called them Klingons and put them in silly outfits, gave them goatees. So when you get to the next generation and they wanted to make a, a Klingon main cast member, or even before that, actually, when they made Star Trek The Motion Picture, they're like, you know what? We have a bigger budget. Let's make the Klingons look a little different. They put some, like, dots on their foreheads, and then you get to the next generation. They turn into full-fledged forehead ridges, and now that's what we think of as Klingons. And then to, to make matters even more confusing, there's a couple of references in the the more modern Star Trek to the original Star Trek saying, oh, we don't talk about that. Like Worf saying, we don't talk about why the Klingons used to look different, which I thought was hilarious in this episode. Uh, uh, more Troubles, More Troubles? No. No, Trials and Tribulations, that's the one, where the Deep Space Nine crew goes to the Trouble with Tribbles episode of the original series, and you get to see these two Klingons on screen together for the first time. So that was the first acknowledgement, in-world acknowledgement, that there was a discrepancy, that Klingons had looked different before. I personally didn't even need that, because I feel like it's obvious, the makeup got better, why do we need to acknowledge it? It just kind of breaks the world a little bit to acknowledge it. But Worf making an offhand comment saying, oh, we don't talk about that, uh, was so great, it was perfect to me. I'm like, that's great. Never mention it again. I'll be happy. So then in Star Trek Enterprise in season four, right at the end of the run of that show, they did this whole story arc about the uh, the the augment virus where like the, the human augments are basically like, you know, uh, genetically engineered humans who are stronger and faster and better. Like Khan, Noonien, Singh from The Wrath of Khan is an augment. And they did a whole story arc about the augments. And then later on in the season, they talked about the Klingons trying to get their hands on this augment virus. And uh, basically infecting themselves with this disease to try to be stronger like the humans had done and accidentally made themselves look more human in the process. And the virus was deadly, but Dr. Flox somehow found a way to save them, And but it would take a long time for the genetic changes to wear off. So it was kind of saying like, oops, we made hu Klingons look more human uh, and then eventually it'll wear off. 
that show, Enterprise, was the last show to air until Discovery. That was 12 years ago. That show was a prequel to the original uh, series, which took place 100 years later in World. And then uh, Picard's era is like 100 years after that. So this this whole storyline was 200 years before Worf. And the idea was that over the course of the next 100 years, most Klingons would get infected and look more human. And then eventually they'd start to look more Klingon as we get closer to the time of the next generation. So enter Star Trek Discovery, which takes place 10 years before Kirk's Enterprise in canon, which is about 110 years before the next generation. And the Klingons look completely different. So... I needed an explanation as a as a fan. I needed a reason. It, it's not good enough for me to just say, "Oh, they, you know, what like they just we just wanted to design them differently." I so I was bothered by that. I was distracted by that. And I I could have done without that. I don't see the need to make them look so different. I you can update the makeup and still have it feel like Klingons. You know, like in J.J. Uh, Abrams' movies, I felt like, uh, in, the, in the second one in particular, where we only, only see that one Klingon's face, but he looks so different. He looks so badass, but really looks like a Klingon to me. You know, he was instantly recognizable as a Klingon. I was also really bothered by the main Klingon's voice. Uh, the way that he was speaking in Klingon was just so <laughs> silly. He was just like, no, po, ni, bu, ba, da, bi, po, ba, bu. It was just like... It was like baby talk, but like slowed down is what it sounded like to me. Uh, and the Klingons have never talked like that before. They always have this cadence like, like something like that. I can't speak Klingon, obviously, but it just didn't sound the way that Klingon speak normally sounds. And it sounded funny to me in a way that was distracting. Uh, but immediately after that first scene where we see those Klingons and I'm all distracted, we cut to our two main characters for these first two episodes, which is Captain Philippa Georgiou and, uh, First Officer Michael Burnham. And they're on some sort of mission to save the water supply for this, uh, primitive species on some crazy desert planet. And I was just in. I was just immediately hooked. I was spellbound by that first scene. I thought it was so fucking cool because they managed to cram in everything that I love about Star Trek w- within the first couple of minutes. I mean, if we're ignoring the Klingon stuff, which was just kind of, uh, I don't, for me, just kind of like setting tension and didn't really do much for me. Uh, walking around on that planet, trying to save this primitive people, talking about how they couldn't reveal themselves. What would you do if you got stuck here for 80 years and you had to uh, like blend in with this society? Everything about it just felt right and felt like Star Trek. And on top of that, we've never seen a female first officer and captain before. So seeing the two of them just handling their shit, not needing backup, you know, like... Like, oh, we could blast a hole in this water supply and it would it would work again. And then they just do it instead of calling for men to come help. You know, they just do it because they're badass women. And I loved it. So I, I just loved it. I, I loved that so much. The whole idea about like walking in the shape of the Starfleet insignia was a little silly because they went out of their way to show that it was like a windy day on this desert planet. There's no way that their footprints would have stuck around long enough for them to walk in that big of a formation. But whatever. And then we get into the opening credits, which were so cool.
The opening credits were fucking rad. The music was cool. The visuals were cool. They really harkened back to the 60s with the design aesthetic. I mean, it's very, it said, you know, right off the bat, special guest star Michelle Yeoh. So it's pretty obvious that that Captain Georgiou is going to die. I mean, it's pretty obvious. And I feel like the storytellers knew that and played with that throughout the the two first hours of the show. Uh, But anyway, the credits kind of, you know, gave that away. I, I also have to point out that uh, Captain Georgiou's first name is Philippa, which I'm I'm sure is a reference to Philippa Lavoie, the <laughs> the Judge Advocate General person from Measure of a Man in season two of Star Trek: Next Generation. I really appreciated that little Easter egg. So after the opening credits were over, to my extreme delight, there was a first officer's log. First officer's log, start date twelve oh seven point three. On Earth, it's May 11th, 2256, a Sunday. And you know the, the the notorious Captain's Log from Star Trek? As soon as you come back from your first commercial break, Captain's Log. This is what we're doing this week, and it promises to be very exciting and interesting, but we're not sure what's going to happen next. And they totally did that, and I loved it. I didn't expect it, and I totally loved it. So just as far as like formatting this, it's been like 12 years since Star Trek has been on the air. Star Trek is no longer a television institution the way it once was. You don't have to do things in any particular way. You can kind of do what you want, and they chose to follow that format, which I thought was super cool, especially because they broke format with Star Trek in so many other ways. They really set a visual palette quickly. When you get onto the Shenzo, the the ship that we're on in the first two episodes, uh, you know, all those slow panning shots like through space and then into the windows and just the way the ship looked and the fact that the camera angles were always kind of a little a little off, almost as if the camera was weightless, which I thought was so cool. There were so many interesting choices, just like the color schemes when they went to red alert and the, the lights were almost like purple magenta-ish color. I I thought that was so cool. Uh, The way that the lighting was so bright and stark and metallic, and you see like the reflections off of people's uniforms because they have that sort of like reflective piping on their their uniforms. So much of it was just so distinct and so unique, uh, but still worked for me inside of the world of Star Trek. Uh, It still felt like Star Trek. Uh, I, I was, again, immediately immersed, immediately invested, so this does take place 10 years before Kirk's Enterprise, and they really didn't uh, make it clear why to me yet. So that was something that was kind of on my mind throughout this. Like, why why did they set this 10 years before? It seems like maybe they just wanted to have the Klingon encounter and show that, like, the war with the Klingons, which we'd never really seen. We hear talk, like, Kirk talking about the war with the Klingons that uh, is kind of on shaky ground, and then by the time you get to the last of the Star Trek movies with Kirk, they do have the... The Kitamura Accords, where they officially make peace, and then that peace lasts into the next generation. Uh, so, I mean, they were briefly, briefly at war in the Dominion War, kind of, but it doesn't matter. So, uh, but, you know, Klingon, we've been at peace for Klingons for most of Star Trek, but they were originally enemies. And then to see that sort of spark of uh, distrust and that spark of war happen between these two people was really interesting to me. And that's basically where the story goes pretty quickly, where uh, Michael goes off on her own in a spacesuit to investigate this this thing that they found and they don't know what it is and it ends up being a sort of beacon. Uh, there's a for, for the Klingons and there's a cloaked sarcophagus ship nearby where these, this ship has like all these Klingon coffins all around it. Uh, and they, they accidentally 
incite a war, basically. And I'm, I'm going to skip around here quite a bit. I don't want to talk through the show, you know, beat by beat. I just want to give you my general impressions. Uh, so the, the sarcophagus ship was another thing that my brain got kind of stuck on because Klingons don't care about their dead. Klingons, like when, when someone dies, the body becomes a shell. They, they look towards the heavens and they scream at Stovacor and they say, a warrior's coming. And then that, that person's spirit goes into like the, the great warrior heaven of Stovacor and then the body becomes a shell. So it was very strange that they, were decorating their ship with Klingon bodies. And then they made such a point of picking up all these bodies out of the battlefield later on in the second episode. Uh, and to me, it felt like they only did that because they wanted, they thought of this cool story idea. Like what if we, you know, <laughs> use the transporter to put a, a bomb inside of a body and they put it back in the ship and we can make it explode. And it felt like that was the only reason they had those bodies as a plot point. So I really want some sort of in-world explanation of why the, the Klingons, uh, are acting this way. <laughs> and there was like a mention in the After Trek show, something that was like written on screen about how before the time of uh, Tecumva, was that his name? Tecumva? Tecumva? I don't remember. Before this guy's time, there were, like, they didn't care about the bodies, but he's part of this like 25th house and they do, I guess. I don't know. That wasn't mentioned on screen during the show. That was just something during After Trek that I saw and I don't remember the exact wording. So, I need something on screen. I need something in canon. You know, uh, if you don't put it on the screen, don't expect me to know it is what I'm is what I'm saying here. Uh, so there's this whole like parallel story happening. I got to look up his name again. God damn it. Tecumva. It is Tecumva. Okay. There's this parallel storyline going on between Tecumva and Michael, our new our new uh, protagonist where you're seeing some of their flashbacks of them growing. And it's uh, it's kind of interesting where you're kind of seeing the two sides of this war kick off embodied in these two people and what happens between them. And you get to see a little bit of their histories. Uh, but I did not I did not need to see any of the of Tecumva's backstory, especially because he's dead by the end of episode two. Uh, I, I found I found that character just incredibly annoying the whole time. It's just his. Uh, no offense to the actor, but his performance was not my cup of tea as a Klingon. Just like, the way that he was talking and uh, he was talked so slow. And even though I couldn't understand the language, I was still annoyed with how slow he was talking and just feeling like it was, you know, like baby talk. I, I just couldn't get around that. But on the other hand, I did really enjoy Michael's flashbacks. And I haven't even said this yet, but it's so interesting that her name is Michael Burnham. I mean, uh, Michael for a female first officer is a really interesting choice of name. It reminded me of the scant, which is the the skirt that men wore in the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation. It reminded me of Gene Roddenberry's ideas of in the future, you know, gender norms are going to be different and they're going to be more equal. So I felt like naming a female character with a male's name kind of nodded to that in a way that I appreciated. I've also read that, I, I did a little reading this morning, I read that, uh, you know, Brian Fuller was originally attached as the executive producer of this show, and it's actually something that he does in all of his shows, or most of his shows at least, where he names a female character with a male name. It's just something that he enjoys. So take that for what you will. I don't know. I don't know. I have no feelings about that either way. But uh, it was interesting. I thought it was interesting that her name was Michael. And she was an incredibly gripping character. And the interesting thing is that we really only have one character, I guess two with uh, Saru. We really have two characters that we'll, we'll continue with moving forward in this story. Or maybe Voke, the, the albino Klingon. I guess he's probably going to play a bigger part. Uh, but he was, he was kind of a non-entity besides just being obsessed with uh, Tecumva. 
Uh, yeah, Tecumva. I keep wanting to say Tecumseh. That's that dude from history class. Well, I guess he's a dude from real life who I learned about in history class. <laughs> anyway, so for me, the big achievement of the first two episodes was Michael as a character because they did something new with the whole idea of like having a character on the bridge who is disconnected from their emotions and is learning about humanity. That's a staple of Star Trek. You know, Spock was that. Data was that. Uh, Odo, Seven of Nine, and then... uh, of course, to Paul in Enterprise. There's always been a character who's sort of the the surrogate for um, alienness, who's learning about humanity, and in that way allows us to learn about humanity as the viewer. So that's Star Trek to a T. Like, that's so important. But what they did this time is they have a human in Michael who was raised by Vulcans. Her parents were killed by Klingons very early on. She's raised by Vulcans. So uh, Vulcans, you know feel emotion but have learned over the years to repress those emotions and just use logic above all else so then we have a human who's raised by Sarek who is Spock's father in case anyone didn't notice that that is Spock's father uh, who also raised this human girl to be logical and to be Vulcan-esque she's obviously not in control of her emotions and I feel like maybe being out of touch with her humanity is why so I found that super interesting as a character um, you know the believability of it, I guess that's a little bit up for up for grabs. Like, do you believe that this person who's first officer, who's so close to her captain, would commit mutiny like that to save her captain? Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Um, I don't know. It is interesting. It's definitely interesting as a story plot point. And then having her be shipped off to jail at the end of the episode was really interesting. So, uh, but but basically, instead of following a crew this time, or following a ship, we're following a character, which is fascinating to me i mean the show is called star trek discovery we did not even see that ship in the first two episodes we will see it in the third it's been you know told to us by the the preview of the third episode and jason isaacs who played uh what's his name uh draco malfoy nope 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 lucius malfoy draco's dad in the harry potter movies is gonna be the captain of discovery uh so that's i mean we're getting this whole new experience next week. We're meeting a whole new ship, a whole new crew. And those are the people whose names are in the opening credits, like Anthony Rapp and all these other people that we didn't see. Uh, so Doug Jones, who played Saru and uh, uh, Sinequa Martin-Green, I think is her name, who plays um, Burnham. Those are the only two characters that are going to be main characters in episode three. So uh, it was fascinating to to feel this connection to this new ship and this crew that we barely got to spend time with, and especially to the captain, to Captain Georgiou, who was then, you know, killed. Uh, and then we just go forward from there from this character's point of view. And it seems pretty obvious that Saru is going to be on Discovery as well. I mean, he must have been reassigned. And I I loved all three of those characters. I loved Burnham, Saru, and Georgiou. I was really into all three of them. Saru is fascinating. I mean, he's this really crazy, tall, lanky dude who uh, was played by the guy who played uh, Abe Sapien in the Hellboy movies, Doug Jones. He's actually in Fifth Passenger, which is, I think, coming out sometime in the future, (laughs) Uh, which is that movie that I interviewed some of the creators from a while back in episode like 17, 16, 17, 18, something like that. There's a couple episodes with fifth passenger people. Uh, So I'm always excited to see Doug Jones in anything. He brings a physicality to his performances that are, that's really fascinating and wonderful. And he's usually behind a mask. And I feel like of all the actors who are kind of known for being creatures, uh, you know, Andy Serkis comes to mind. Uh, Doug Jones is for me a favorite where 
I just, I mean, I love Andy Serkis, but whenever I see that Doug Jones is playing a creature character, uh, especially if it's in a Guillermo del Toro movie, you know you're in for a treat. He's going to do something wonderful. I, I mean, if you've seen Pan's Labyrinth, that he, he did some of the creature work in that. He, he's a really wonderful uh, physical performer, and he, but he's also a great actor. He's got you know great screen presence, and I, you know, you don't get to see his face much, but uh, I just really like watching him perform. So I was thrilled that he was going to be playing this character, and I really enjoyed that character. Saru is sort of this uh, like take no risks character. <laughs> Which is really interesting. His species, and I hope they go into this more, his species was bred as cattle, I guess, in in his uh, genealogical history, something akin to cattle where they're just kind of, you know, beasts of burden, I guess, and they were bred to sense the coming of death. So... This kind of goes unsaid in the episode, but I feel like Saru told Michael that uh, Captain Georgiou was going to die. They don't make it clear what he senses with the coming of death, but I felt like he was trying to say that, or maybe it happened off screen that he said that uh, Captain Georgiou was going to die. Because that explains to me why... um, why uh, Michael would act so extremely as far as like committing mutiny. If she had you know, explicit information that her mentor, her mother figure was about to be killed, then she would do something pretty crazy, I would think. But they don't make that explicitly clear. I mean, it, Saru just says he senses the coming of death. So it's it's unclear whether or not she's trying to save her whole crew or if she's trying to... I, I felt like it had to be personal. It had to be personal with, with, her, with her captain. But anyway, that's what I took from it is that he might have told her as that conversation continued and they held that information from us, maybe that she knew explicitly that Captain Georgiou was going to be killed. Uh, anyway, um, really interesting character in Saru. I'm really excited to learn more about him. I really enjoyed a lot of the small characters on the show. Unfortunately, most of them died. <laughs> like there was that scene where, uh, where Michael was in the brig and that person came in and started talking to her and saying, you know, we're, we're Starfleet. We're, we're explorers. Why, why are we fighting a war? Uh, and seeing that happen in the first episode, I thought was so cool. Like really, really hammering home for me that the creators understand Star Trek, that, you know, they are explorers. They're not adventurers. Uh, they're not uh, warriors. Although they do get into adventures and they do fight wars, they are explorers. They are people with a noble spirit of exploration. You know, that's what Starfleet is all about. And I felt it in this episode, which was so cool. And, uh, you know, continuing the traditions of diversity and uh, all that sort of stuff that Star Trek is famous for. I feel like they really nailed it in the first episode. So all the stuff that happened on the Shenzhou in episode one in particular before they start fighting was what really sold me on the show. Like seeing some day-to-day operations on the ship, even though we just got a little bit of it. Seeing the character interactions on the ship, I really enjoyed. Uh, And then by the time we got into the fighting, I was so rooting for these characters, so rooting for these characters and kind of watching these events unfold as Michael accidentally kills this Klingon in, while they're, you know, in their EVA suits. That whole sequence was really well done. Uh, Michael's EVA suit really reminded me of the one that Spock used in the motion picture, which I thought was super cool. Uh, much more, it reminded me more of that than it would reminded me of the EVA suits that they used in Star Trek Inner Darkness, which are kind of silly. So I appreciated that. I mean, the battle sequences were pretty incredible. You know, the the Starfleet is called in. I love that there was a ship named the Europa. It's a great name for a ship. Um, it was un- it was destroyed, unfortunately. But uh, you know, just diving right into a war right in the beginning is so different from what you usually get in Star Trek, which is usually like a slow burn of politics that avoids war. Um, 
you know, Deep Space Nine being the big exception. I guess they did an Enterprise 2 where they really just go to war for a season. But Deep Space Nine, the Dominion War lasts for years of that show. Uh, but it, you get to know the characters in a time of peace first. So I really appreciated that they just kind of went for it and say, we're going to tell a war story. And from what I can tell, it's it's a story of like, how do we uphold our higher moral values in this sort of a situation? Uh, and the, this, I mean, the first two episodes were all like moral arguments happening over and over. And it made me so happy. It's like, what is the moral and right thing to do? So Michael gets this information from Sarek that, you know, they used to use the Vulcan hello to the Vulcans to deal with the Klingons, which meant that they would just pummel them with all of their military might because the Klingons only respond to violence. Uh, so Michael believes the right thing to do is to attack this Klingon ship and uh, Captain Georgiou disagrees and that's why Michael commits mutiny because she's sure she's 100% sure with her logic and her Vulcan upbringing that that if they don't attack these Klingons then it will result in their destruction and and trigger a war potentially so it's interesting because you want to side with Captain Georgiou here because she says Starfleet never fires first and you want to side with that and that seems like the right thing to do and yet all those people died for it so uh it was really, I, yeah, I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. I want to see where they go with that because I want Georgiou to be right in that argument. Um, I I like the fact that Sarek and the Vulcans in general are are sometimes so logical that they're dispassionate uh, where they completely lose any sense of empathy. Uh, and I like seeing that kind of uh, balanced out against this human uh, over empathetic response or this, you know, uh, feeling like doing things by instinct that humans tend to do. Like Kirk is a creature of instinct and Spock is a creature of logic and seeing them sort of work together and find solutions through things by combining their, their, their tendencies is really wonderful. And I feel like in this episode, they kind of put those two things at odds, but then, um, didn't really dive into what was right or what was wrong. Just the fact that it caused a war, you know, (laughs) So, yeah, so I'm very curious to see how they sort of develop those themes, which I hope they do over the course of the season. From what I understand from After Trek, they're going to be doing a Klingon war for basically a season. So, who knows what's coming after that? I was I was glad that, uh, that Michael and Philippa had a chance to talk and sort of get back on the same page before Philippa was killed because that would have been very frustrating for me if they'd like, you know... You, you get a sense of their really strong, powerful relationship. You get a really good sense of it uh, pretty quickly. And then knowing that, you know, she's a special guest star, she's probably going to die. And then seeing Michael commit treason and <laughs> or, uh, you know, uh, mutiny and not be sure if those two characters would get to work it out was a frustrating moment. But seeing getting getting to have them sit down and have Michael say, I'm, I'm doing this because I... I wanted to pre- prevent you from dying specifically was, was really nice to see. And uh, of course then, you know, Philippa's killed pretty quickly after that. Uh, it was so interesting how Michael, like Michael's plan was to capture Tecumva because she said, if, if he's killed, he'll become a martyr. But if we can capture him and use him as a bargaining chip, then maybe we can bring the Klingons to the negotiating table. And then when Tecumva kills Philippa, she just kills him in cold blood and that was the one moment where she had a chance to prevent war and she fucked up. So that was really interesting. And I'm curious to see how that emotional baggage weighs on the character moving forward. Uh, I mean, she tried. It's interesting because she tried so hard to prevent the war. She tried in, in a mutiny to prevent the war. And I think that maybe she could have. Maybe it would have worked. But then in her like because of those same emotional 
reactions that she seems to not be able to control about uh, Philippa, her mother figure, she then starts a war <laughs> by killing Tecumva. She then creates the martyr that she was hoping to avoid. So it's an interesting balance for that character across the first two episodes of like following her passions and her convictions and her emotions, which are obviously very strong in ways that are both super logical and then super illogical. So uh, I, I think that she as a character is the great thing that's come out of these first two episodes. And that's why I'm so excited about the show is because she feels so Star Trek. She feels like she's caught between, you know, Vulcan and human. And and there's nothing more Star Trek than that. But to see it through... Uh, a, a human point of view and a female point of view is something we haven't done before. So and not just a main character, but a lead, like the lead character. Janeway is the only other female lead that we've ever had. So uh, not only is, is Michael not a captain and we're not watching this through the captain's point of view, we're watching it through the point of view of someone who's conflicted in cultures and conflicted in their morals and their ethics and torn between these two people uh, as far as the Vulcans and the humans and not just that, but torn between her love of of this person, Philippa, and, and between her obligations to Starfleet. And just so interesting. Like, what an interesting character. I'm really excited about that. And the fact that that character is the through line to episode three, when we get on to Discovery, she's the person we're going to be seeing this through the eyes of. I think that's brilliant and wonderful. Uh, this is definitely not an episodic show. You know, traditional Star Trek, you get out of your shit by the end of the episode so that you can go back to, to baseline the next week. And they're definitely not doing that. You know, uh, Enterprise didn't, Enterprise kind of veered away from that. Deep Space Nine kind of veered away from that. But uh, Voyager, Next Generation, and the original series, and even the animated series were all very episodic. That was something that Gene Roddenberry really wanted. So we've cut the cord from episodic Star Trek. This is now more of a storytelling style akin to um, like Lost or Game of Thrones or the serialized shows where there's a huge cliffhanger at the end of the episode and they're telling big story arcs over the course of a season. That's definitely what they're giving us here. Uh, and it seems like season one is going to be the story of the Klingon War. So that leaves it so open to what's going to happen in the future. The fact that we're already changing crews on episode three makes me wonder, um, is it going to be on Discovery for the rest of the run of the series? If they get seven years, are they going to destroy Discovery and go on to like some other ship with some other crew? I mean, there was rumors early on that it was going to be an anthology show uh, and or like not a traditional show, not a traditional Star Trek show in that you follow one crew, but an anthology show in that you'd follow like different crews throughout Starfleet. That was a rumor that was debunked. But I think maybe the reason that rumor started is because they're doing something kind of similar to that, where you're seeing like different aspects of Starfleet through one character's eyes. Uh, and you're traveling from ship to ship with this character. And to me, that is a thrill like I, as someone who's wanted to be in Starfleet my entire life fuck yeah what a great way to set up the series where we are you know we are seeing it through Michael's eyes and then we're just traveling with her through Starfleet not just through space but through through Starfleet itself we're gonna see different things in Starfleet I, I just think that's so cool and uh, she was on her way to jail at the end of episode two but you know the preview for episode three spoils the fact that they take her to discovery instead because they need all available minds for whatever is coming that's what Jason Isaac's captain said so, yeah, they're playing with the format of Star Trek, but they're keeping it true to the core of the show, which is, uh, you know, exploration, which is uh, moral ambiguity, which is exploring humanity, which is uh, captain's logs or first officer's logs and uh, this sort of heightened sense of humanity. And 
I the the characterizations of the of the two female uh, commanders on this, you know, the captain and the, and the first officer, they were so solid. They were so Star Trek ish. You know, they were kind of. Um, like Michael is almost aloof and detached, and I think that's her sort of Vulcan side. But Philippa is has got this like world weary optimism, which I I don't know how else to describe it. You can tell when you see her that she's been through some shit, she's seen a lot, and she's come out of it the other side optimistic, and uh and she's a caring, loving person who uh knows how to take command and knows how to get shit done, but also knows how to be compassionate and knows how to care about the people in her command, and. I, I, w- I would watch a thousand shows. I would watch a thousand hours of television with Michelle Yeoh as, as uh, Captain Georgiou. I, I loved that character. And I, I'm not complaining that she died because I'm sure you can only get Michelle Yeoh for a couple of episodes. And I'm glad we got just those two because it was so wonderful. But I am sad that we don't get her for the rest of the run as the captain because holy shit, holy shit, she was so cool. So I, uh, so that, that's basically my thoughts about uh, the plot and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's, there's so much to talk about with this show aesthetically. I, I feel like, for me, the aesthetics really, really worked uh, for this particular show, but they didn't necessarily work in the canon of Star Trek. So we had the J.J. movies, which people call the J.J.-verse, or the, uh, the, uh, the Kelvin timeline. And the reason it's called that is because... Uh, there's the USS Kelvin in the beginning of the the first reboot movie in 2009, where the Kelvin uh, with George Kirk, Kirk's father, uh, James Kirk's father, like sacrificing himself to to cripple Nero's ship, which uh, sets off an alternate timeline, which is separate from the one that we've seen on TV and in the movies up until that point. So that's called the Kelvin timeline because the USS Kelvin was the ship that instigated that that uh, point in time, which split off the two different timelines. So, you know, when we have Chris Pine and Zachary Kinto as Kirk and Spock, that is a completely different timeline than what we had in the original series, which gives them the creative freedom to do whatever they wanted. This show, Star Trek Discovery, takes place in the prime timeline, which is the same timeline that's been on TV since the 60s. Uh, all the Star Trek shows take place in one continuity, and all the movies except for the, the three newest movies take place in this one continuity, the prime timeline, and that's where Star Trek Discovery takes place. The weird thing is that Aesthetically, Discovery takes more cues from the Kelvin movies than it does from anything we've seen on Star Trek on TV. Uh, as far as the look of the bridge and having like this giant window that you see through instead of like a, a, a view screen um, that's just projected where if you turn it off, you're not actually looking out in space. That was very akin to what we saw in JJ's movies. Uh, this The sort of um, metallic nature of the lighting, which I don't know how to describe in any way other than that, was reminiscent of the JJ movies to me. The JJ movies are a little bit brighter and uh, sparklier and twinklier, but um, I, but something about the way it was lit did remind me of those movies. Uh, there was something like very like artistic about the lighting that you don't necessarily see on on Star Trek and on TV in general. Like Next Generation is just very well lit, very bright, and they made a really big lighting change when they did the movie Star Trek Generations, the first of the four uh, TNG crew movies. Um, like the the bridge looks completely different, and the lighting looks completely different in all the rooms, which I thought was kind of an interesting choice. But but with Discovery, I feel like the lighting was just such a such a, a bold statement, and I really liked it. I feel like the the spark of the the outfits the uniforms really kind of played into that where you're seeing this um whatever proto star or something is happening outside of the the view screen the light from that coming into the bridge and reflecting off of their uniforms and reflecting off of glass and things like that it was so cool i mean it just really 
added a sense of realism to being in space that I really appreciated. I, I felt like they really tried hard to make it feel tangible, and I really appreciate that. But the problem is that they sent this they set this 10 years before Kirk's Enterprise, and it looks nothing like it. You know, the, the uniforms are so different. The, uh, the, the design aesthetic is so different. Everything is so different. So why do that? Why set it 10 years before Kirk's Enterprise and have it look like it happened 500 years later? I don't, I don't understand that choice. And I still don't after seeing the first couple episodes. Like, that's something that always kind of confused me. And I'm still confused, unfortunately. Same with the design of the Klingons. Still kind of confused about the choice to do that. At least with Star Trek Enterprise, it took place a hundred years before Kirk, and kind of I think like a hundred years or something in our future, maybe two hundred years in our future. So they kind of played with you know making something halfway between Kirk and modern, like modern day. And I think that they did a pretty good job, actually. I really like the design aesthetic of Enterprise, and it works for me imagining going to the future of the original series uh, in that timeline, and it kind of fitting together. Uh, same with Next Generation. If you go 100 years from the original series, I feel like Next Generation still feels like the same world. But when, but even in JJ's movies, you know, the Kelvin timeline starts when, uh, like the first movie starts when Kirk is being born. So it's like, what is he in that, in the first movie, like 20 or 25 or 30 or something like that. So I guess that ship would have happened 10 or 20 years before Discovery, like the Kelvin incident would have happened 10 or years, 20 years before Discovery starts. And those actually look very similar, which is kind of interesting is because they've, they've chosen to use that design aesthetic of those movies. And because the timeline didn't split off until after that, uh, like the Kel- the ship, the Kelvin would have been the same in both timelines. So in that way, it kind of makes sense, but it still doesn't make sense if you imagine Kirk's Enterprise coming to 10 years after that. So I don't know. These are the kind of things that I don't normally get that hung up on because I just chalk it all up to um, just improvements in technology and improvements in filmmaking that allow them to do more of what they'd originally envisioned. And I kind of imagine the original series as like a play version of Star Trek where it's not actually what's happening, but it's like a play and you have to fill it in with your imagination because like otherwise everyone's just look, looks like a human and maybe they made their faces brown, aka Klingons. Uh but yeah, <laughs> anyway, so so you have to kind of fill in your imagination to make it work. Uh, and and like Discovery, you don't need to use your imagination because it looks so realized. You can just kind of put yourself into it and just let yourself go into the world because it looks so realized. And I love that. Um, but I'm also very beholden to Star Trek canon, and I, I want this show to be also. And the fact that there was a couple things that felt a little funky, like the the Klingons being so obsessed with their dead bodies and just like the 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 overall look of the show being so different it just it it made me wonder why they chose that particular moment in star trek history to place this show and i i don't really understand why except for maybe they just wanted to show the klingon war the klingon federation war which we haven't seen before and i guess this is when that happens canonically although i you know my my original series knowledge is my my memory so bad i i don't remember if they said specifically when the klingon war happened or not i don't know if we had like a canon version of that or not uh, maybe Kirk said something like maybe 10 years ago, we fought the Klingons. I don't know. I don't remember. So I, I don't know if that's the reason why, then they really need to sell it to me over the course of this year that, that these are indeed Klingons because they didn't feel like Klingons to me. It felt like a totally new species that I thought was really interesting besides the way that that one dude talked way too slow. Uh, you know, there, there was a lot that was interesting about it, but it was so far removed from anything that we've seen of Klingons or the Klingon Empire that it just felt like 
Like, why? Like, why did you do this? Why Why is this what you needed to tell if you're not even going to make it look like Klingons? I would have, I, I always wanted them to go into the future. I wanted them to go after Voyager and do something in the future of the prime timeline. That's what I've wanted since Voyager went off the air. Uh, I was bummed that Enterprise went back in time, even though I love that show. But Enterprise actually did this plot line with the temporal Cold War, where there was a uh, a character from the future of the Star Trek timeline who was coming back and talking about this like uh, Cold War that was happening through time travel devices being used and breaking up the timeline. And that was fascinating and so cool. And in that way, did feel like a continuation of the Prime storyline. So uh, when I heard about Discovery being 10 years before, I wouldn't say that I was disappointed, but I was a little surprised and perplexed by the choice to keep going back in time in Star Trek's history. Like, the last three Star Trek projects in a row have either been Kirk's era or before. So, why not go to the future? I mean, it's a show about the future. Why not go to the future? And if the reason to do that is to show the Klingon Civil War, I'm not buying it. That's not quite enough for me. Uh, But I am overjoyed with how much I love the show. All my little nitpicks aside, um, they're they're very nerdy things that did not keep me from enjoying the show. It's a very enjoyable show. It's so well written, well acted. They gave you so much information about all the characters through lines of dialogue and and uh, like the expository nature of Star Trek is something I really enjoy that I feel like they nailed. So overall, I mean, I'm so happy and so excited, and I cannot wait for more Star Trek Discovery. As I've said before, I'm a CBS All Access affiliate, so if you want to sign up for CBS All Access to watch this show, click on the link in the description. It's just a link to take you to the CBS All Access landing page, but if you use my link, then I get a commission if you actually sign up. Well, let's call it a day. Let's call that an episode. Uh, You know, it's my birthday today, so I wanted to do this quick, get this edited and out to you, and then I'm going to go hang out with Andy and Sarah and play some pinball, and I'm motherfucking excited about it. So... Uh, But I did want to spend some time with you all on my birthday because I love doing this. It's so much fun. Something about sitting by myself and talking about Star Trek just brings me a lot of glee. And I wanted to get these thoughts out. I'm sure I will be talking more about this show in the future. Uh, So yeah, next week I'm not 100% sure what's happening. I did finish watching Babylon 5 Season 2, so I will be convening with Doug in the near future to talk about that. And maybe that will be next week. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I might take a week off. I don't know. I haven't taken a week off in about a month, so maybe I'll do that. I'm not sure, but either case, more nerdy, wonderful sci-fi shit will be coming to you in the very near future. Uh, Until then, I'm Jesse Mercury asking you to stay nerdy out there.